This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm superstar Frank Moreno. I have to tell you a story. This is in the BBC. I am going to uh, post this on my Facebook page. And uh, it's a story involving um, a fairly well-to-do widow, about 80 years of age, by the name of Carolyn Holland. She's described as a wealthy widow. I don't know what wealthy is anymore. Does that mean she's got $2 million? Does that mean she's got $10 million? Does that mean she's got $100 million, a billion? I don't know what wealthy means. But she's 80 years old, and she lives in an idyllic California beachside resort. And she has met a gentleman by the name of David Fout, a man 23 years her junior. He came to do some odd jobs for her. Within weeks, they were a couple declaring declaring their undying love for one another. Carolyn said she never expected to fall so deeply in love with a stranger or to be having a romantic sexual relationship at her age. She told the BBC, quote, he's given me something special because of his caring spirit. We share a lot. I love his personality and I hate it when he's gone. Dave told the BBC reporter Sue Mitchell. Um. I'm going to take care of her as best I can unless I can. All the guys know that Carolyn's my girl, and I don't mess about it. I don't stay out late because I have someone to go home to. I'm going to remain until the wheels fall off. Now, Carolyn is a wealthy widow, 80 years old. David is not just 23 years her junior, which makes him 57. He's homeless. He is a homeless handyman who is now in this relationship with a wealthy widow. They're very much in love. They're telling the world this is a great relationship. However, Carolyn's daughters see things a bit differently. They believe that Dave was out to con and fleece their mother and would break her heart. And uh, there, I'm curious what you think about this. Obviously, we don't know what's going on in someone else's relationship, but based on what we know, uh, it sounds a little suspicious. Is Carolyn about to fall victim to financial abuse, which affects one in five over the age over the 60s, meaning 70 or more? Carolyn's niece Kim told this BBC reporter. The age difference really bothered me. That was a red light. Why would someone that age act like he's in love with her except to have a place to stay? So this reporter actually lives down the block from these people. So she writes, I was in a unique position to watch the story unfold. Everyone involved wanted to talk. Carolyn's daughters welcomed a chance to give 
voice to their worries. Dave and Carolyn thought they were being wrongly judged and wanted to tell their story. The reporter writes, when I first met Dave, I really warmed to him. He'd been recommended to do some renovation work for me by a neighbor through the local church where he was a regular in the congregation. Dave charmed all the other workmen on the job. He played the harmonica and guitar. He was funny and seemed very open about his past. The more I heard, however, the more I understood why Carolyn's family were alarmed. Dave had arrived in this community homeless and was living rough sleeping out by the pier when he first showed up to Carolyn's house to do some work. He readily admitted he'd been a crystal meth addict. It had led him to drug dealing and eventually made him so paranoid that he was jailed for making pipe bombs that police believed were linked to a possible attack on Walmart. Jeez. Dave was and still is convinced that the supermarket chain was intending to microchip us all. Dave claimed to have given up drugs, but I noticed he drank quite a bit and smoked a lot of marijuana, too. Carolyn's daughters, Susan and Sally, were horrified by the change in their mother's personality after she met Dave. Sally said, it's like a fantasy world. It's so bizarre. And she was like a teenager when he came along. She was doing all this weird giggling and laughing. The daughters didn't believe for a moment that they were witnessing that what they were witnessing was love. What they saw was a lonely old woman in need of a companion and a cunning outsider on the make. There was also the question of inheritance. With her late husband, Joe, Carolyn had built up a property portfolio worth a few million dollars. One of the daughters said, it's our family's money. My parents worked hard for that money. Should we be okay just giving it to some loser? Carolyn's daughters believed she was already losing mental capacity when she met Dave. They tried to have her declared mentally unfit to manage her own affairs. Carolyn tells the BBC reporter, they think I have Alzheimer's. Yes, I forget a lot of things, but I have too much stress. I can make my own decisions. Her relationship with Dave was pushing Carolyn apart from her daughters, but she felt she had every right to have the partner of her choice. Carolyn said they had not given her the support she needed after their father's death. They never came to see me before Dave. Honestly, they did not. Now, her daughters say that's not true. And the daughters said they wish they could have been around more, but both or both of them were bringing up children and working full time. We tried to include her in everything, but... Before Dave came along, Sally, who lives closer, had helped her mother with her accounts and tax returns. However, the rift prompted Carolyn to take back control of her finances. Not long after, Carolyn co-signed a credit agreement with Dave, allowing him to buy a $40,000 van. And the reporter asked Carolyn what would happen if Dave disappeared, leaving her to cover the full cost of the loan. She said she didn't mind and she didn't care what her daughters thought. So what's the truth about Dave? Is he um, just a gigolo? Is he trying to bilk this woman? What do you think? 800-848-9222. So this reporter followed Dave, and she witnessed him in town boasting to his friends that soon he would never have to work again. So he decided to investigate his past, and what the reporter found was a dark history of domestic violence and child neglect. One relationship ended when he suspected his partner was unfaithful. He beat her up. In an earlier marriage, there was a baby daughter who'd nearly died from neglect. 
This child had been sold by Dave to a couple who eventually legally adopted her. And so when the reporter spoke to him, Dave would say this was all in the past. He was a churchgoer now. He'd made a pact with God to lead a better life. He had come to this community with nothing and saw his relationship with Carolyn as a sign that their relationship was meant to be. But um, this is an interesting situation because... Carolyn refused to be vaccinated on Dave's advice. He convinced her the vaccination program was a process of government control. By the time she was sent home from um, the hospital, Caroline's poor physical and mental state allowed her daughters to gain power of attorney status, giving them control over her financial affairs. And then finally, Carolyn died. According to the daughter, it wasn't the COVID that killed her. But definitely didn't help because she was already declining. So she didn't get vaccinated because of this fella. She got COVID. And the cause of death wasn't COVID, but she died. The daughters did not allow Dave to visit Carolyn during her last days. And they didn't call to tell him when she died. There was no funeral either because the daughters were upset at the lack of support they thought the local church had given them. Susan and Sally still feel that their mother was taken advantage of. And that nobody, doctors, police, or care services, helped them. So um, I think this is a sad story all around. And for families like Carolyn's, there's this dangerous gray area surrounding mental capacity and the right to self-determination in later life. This is not an unusual tale, which is why I'm sharing it. Geriatricians, geriatricians say that they hear similar stories like this all the time. Um, now this fellow Dave is homeless again. He does have the van that Carolyn helped him buy. And the last time the reporter saw him, he was in a, a kind of a trance, flicking a lighter on and off and telling himself over and over again that he loved Carolyn. When she called, I came, I miss Carolyn, I loved Carolyn. I don't know what you should do if this is your parent or your loved one, but it's a sad situation all the way around. And if he brought her some happiness, maybe it wasn't such a bad situation for her. We'll take your calls in a moment, but I'm going to talk with Jonathan Alter straight ahead. He is uh, an authority on all things related to Jimmy Carter. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I heard a young man speaking out just the other day, so I stopped to take a listen to what he had to say. He spoke straight and simple By that I was impressed He said Once and for all Why not the best He said his name was Jimmy Carter And he was running for president Then he laid out a plan of action That made a lot of sense He talked about the government And how good it This is the 
other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, over the course of the last few months, the world has sort of been looking anew at the life and times of the presidency of Jimmy Carter. Well, the life of Jimmy Carter and the presidency of Jimmy Carter. And a lot of folks, especially folks that are a little bit younger, have tended to view Jimmy Carter through that old cliche of mediocre or poor president, but great ex-president. But the funny thing about Jimmy Carter is that if you listen to his political adversaries, people that can't stand his politics, people that didn't vote for him, people that worked tirelessly to make sure that he never got elected to anything, they all begin a discussion of Jimmy Carter by talking about what a great guy he was. With the news that uh, the former First Lady Rosalind Carter has passed away and their incredible marriage, at least on this earth, has come to an end, a lot of people have been looking at what a transformative First Lady she was. A lot of people have been comparing her to folks like Eleanor Roosevelt and Hillary Clinton, which is not necessarily something that, uh, before her obituary was written, I think would have sprung to a lot of people's minds. Someone who has studied the life and times of Jimmy Carter more closely than anyone is Jonathan Alter. He's a columnist, a documentary filmmaker, a lecturer, and a best-selling author whose books include his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Mr. Alter, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, Let me begin by asking you a little bit about the relationship that the Carters had with one another, Jimmy and Rosalind. Uh, Their time together as a married couple is literally longer than most people that get sentenced to life in prison end up serving in prison. What was their relationship like? Uh, What can you uh, fill us in about the depth of their relationship? Well, first, just in terms of its length, they were married for 77 years, and there are only a thousand couples in the entire United States who've been married for more than 75 years. So just statistically, uh, the fact that their marriage, you know, lasted that long and he was a president of the United States is, is extraordinary. But in truth, they actually knew each other for 96 years because uh, Ruth Smith in the tiny town of Plains, Georgia, where Jimmy Carter also lived, she was delivered by Lillian Carter, Jimmy's mother, who was a nurse and delivered a lot of the babies in that town. And a couple of days uh, after she was born in 1927, uh, Lillian Carter brought her, her two-and-a-half-year-old toddler around to see the new baby. Now, they didn't start going out, you know, till, uh, 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 you know, 17 years later when uh, when Jimmy was at the Naval Academy and Rosalind was a freshman in, in college at a local college. But uh, they they developed an extraordinary partnership, and she became – one of the most influential uh, first ladies in American history because pretty much everything that he did, he did with her, and she was one of his top advisors. Now, often in White House, uh, you know, the president's staff gets upset with the first lady having too much power. Like, what does she know? Why is she in these meetings? But Rosalind Carter was so formidable 
and smart, and she had such a, a good political sense, much better than her husband's. Uh, if, if he had listened to her more, he might have been better off politically. <laughs> that even um, the president's aides were, you know, often eager to have her in um, in those meetings. And we can talk, if you want, about some of her very substantive contributions that changed the country in significant ways. But um, much of that happened uh, during his presidency, not not after his presidency. The assumption that, you know, these achievements were all after he left office is just erroneous. So let, let's talk about uh, Rosalind Carter as first lady. What did she do differently than first ladies before her? And how did she sort of remake the role of first lady if she did? Well, first, um, she was the first uh, first lady who actually had a professional policy staff in the East uh, Wing of the White House um, and, and you know, hired issue experts to work on real issues like mental health uh, and uh, age discrimination, a series of other issues that she was interested in that, that resulted in specific uh, policies. I mean, uh, Carter signed the first major mental health legislation in American history. It had been, uh, mental illness had been stigmatized really until Rosalind Carter. And then she and the wife of Senator Dale Bumpers of uh, Arkansas, they went around the country and they convinced 33 states to require proof of vaccination before children could enter school, which did a tremendous amount for public health uh, in this country. And then in in other cases, she was just kind of advising her, her husband. Um, um, And uh, she, you know, pushed him hard on um, naming more women uh, to senior positions. Uh, Jimmy Carter ended up appointing five times as many women to the federal bench as all of his predecessors combined. And he he kind of moved the government from tokenism to genuine diversity, which is a pretty big accomplishment and one that she had a lot to do with. And that just kind of scratches the surface of her involvement in, in major issues. She was a diplomat for him and very important on human rights, uh, which was a Carter initiative that was later embraced by Republican presidents as being very helpful in uh, moving uh, nations, including communist countries, uh, toward toward democracy. And um, she, um, you know, she was there for his failures as well um, and tried to advise him to be tougher on Iran, for instance, but he didn't want to risk losing the hostages. It's a little... um, familiar mm-hmm. for, for all of us today. Um, so he didn't want to take a, a harder line, although he did end up trying to stage a husky res- rescue mission. Um, but he, um, you know, didn't want to take military action, even though his wife and his mother were, along with some other people, were advising him to do so. 
Whenever you have a, a powerful first lady or even the wife of a politician that's not the president, whether it's uh, someone like Hillary Clinton, whether it's someone like Nancy Reagan, or uh, on a local level, someone like uh, Bill de Blasio's ex-wife, Shirlane McRae, there seems to be a little bit of resentment, not just from the staffers working for that politician, but maybe even from the public. Oh, we didn't elect that person. Why should that person be tasked? with being in charge of of anything. Did Rosalind Carter face that kind of criticism when she was in office or when she was the first lady? She did a little bit. So at one point, um, she began sitting in on cabinet meetings and she didn't um, say anything, but there was some public controversy surrounding that. However, her popularity was always uh, much uh, greater than her husband's. And because she was such a gracious uh, woman and um, she, she didn't rub people the wrong way. And so most people who dealt with her uh, liked her in both parties. And, and uh, you know, she ended up being uh, quite um, popular, but, but often overlooked because she didn't have that um, uh you know, she didn't um, become a lightning rod the way both Nancy Reagan and Hillary Clinton and Eleanor Roosevelt as well did in their day. And so mostly she was kind of, um, especially, you know, in, in recent decades, she was overlooked when people were assessing first ladies. And, and I think that was a mistake if you actually look at the scoreboard in terms of what you know, what she accomplished. At one point, she went on a diplomatic mission for her husband. She went around uh, and, you know, faced down dictators um, in Latin America and um, got a lot accomplished on that mission. And the press coverage of that was glowing because I think there was an expectation that she wouldn't, you know, um, be up to snuff. Um, And she was. She just was a very... Uh, impressive um, person and came an enormous distance from this tiny town in Georgia where where they both were born. Whenever Jimmy Carter's name uh, comes up on this program in any context, there are folks that will repeat the cliche that I mentioned when I was introducing you. Great ex-president, very poor president. And they'll point to not just the Iranian hostage situation, but the situation economically in uh, in the country at the time. The sky-high interest rates, the general feeling of malaise. Is part of the reason why you chose to write your book, and I'm sure spend a lot of time on it, because you were hoping to kind of disprove that cliche, very poor president, great ex-president? Uh, yeah, that was a partial motivation. I mean, I think we have to be you know, honest about this. He, he doesn't belong on Mount Rushmore. You know, he, he will never be in the first rank of American presidents. And my book has an awful lot of criticism of him in it. But um, But essentially what Jimmy Carter was, was a a political failure. I mean, he was thrashed by Ronald Reagan, but a substantive success, a visionary success in terms of the environment, human rights, uh, the Camp David Accords, the most durable peace treaty uh, since World War II, you know, um, peace between Israel and Egypt. 
imagine if we didn't have that um, treaty in effect now. Mm. Uh, and this, you know, this provided uh, Carter was criticized in some cases for good reason um, by uh, American Jews uh, uh, on occasion. But he did more for the security of the state of Israel uh, by taking uh, the Egyptian army off the table um, than any president since Harry Truman and, and the founding of the state of Israel. And then, um, you know, normalization of relations with China, uh, the Panama Canal treaties, which um, got a lot of Republican votes and, and arguably prevented a, a major war in Central America, which the Joint Chiefs said would have happened if not for uh, um, for ratification. Uh, and uh, uh bunch of other things that we could talk about. Now, how much should he be blamed for the hostages being seized in in Iran? Um, I think the answer to that is not at all. It wasn't his fault that they were they were seized. They could say embassy security was not what it could have been. And I guess you could lay that on him if you wanted to you know, look at it that way. Um, he but clearly that hurt him a lot. And as you indicated, the bad economic conditions hurt him a lot. You had double digit inflation and interest rates and high unemployment at a certain point also st- ruinous stagflation um, that malaise. And he, he never used the word malaise in that, that famous speech that was called the malaise speech. But, you know, that characterized the 1970s and um, people say, well, you know, Ronald Reagan brought us out of this and brought the economy back. Um, but, you know, I wanted to look a little bit more closely at that. And when you do, you you come up with an interesting explanation for how it happened. Now, I think as most of your listeners know, the Federal Reserve has more to do with what happens in the economy than the president does. Right. So the reason that interest rates went so high in the in 1979 and 1980, exactly at the moment Carter is running for reelection, is that Carter appointed Paul Volcker Mm -hmm. to be chair of the Federal Reserve. And Volcker decided that the only way to end inflation was very harsh medicine. So it's like what Chairman Jerome Powell is doing on steroids. Right much, much greater increases in in interest rates because inflation was much, much higher in the 70s than it is now for reasons that, again, had were not Jimmy Carter's fault. They had to do with OPEC, you know, Arab oil embargo, the Iranian revolution, a series of things that were happening internationally that no president of the United States was able to control. Um, certainly Nixon couldn't control it when it started, when these when inflation started under Nixon. So what Carter did to address it was to appoint Volcker. Volcker jacked up interest rates and Carter lost. You know, really hard to run when you have sure. interest rates as high as 19%. So then Reagan comes in. Reagan initially is really upset with Volcker almost doesn't reappoint him uh, because there's a terrible recession in 1982, which Volcker's high interest rates precipitated. That was what Volcker was trying to do. Super harsh medicine. Then what happens? The Volcker policy 
ends inflation and Reagan is easily reelected in 1984. Now, does that go on Reagan's account or on <laughs> Paul Volcker's account? I think it goes on Paul Volcker's account. Well, Who I appointed get... Paul Volcker? Jimmy Carter. Right. Well, and then, and then obviously reappointed by President Reagan. Uh, talking with uh, Jonathan Alter. Yeah, yeah reappointed. Um, uh, he, he author of the book, his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Yeah. Let me ask you a little bit about Jimmy Carter as a personality and a person. One of the things that almost every president in the last 70 or 80 years seems to have in common is an enormous amount of personal ambition. People of different ages, different uh, mm-hmm. ethnic backgrounds, different parts of the country. They all seem to share uh, from the time they were incredibly young, this overarching sense of ambition. When people think of Jimmy Carter, my sense is they don't immediately think of the word ambition. Looking at Jimmy Carter's early life, did he display the kind of ambition that most future presidents display? Um, it was a little bit different. Um, first of all, a lot of people say, oh, Jimmy Carter, humble man. Um, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think any politician is humble. And Jimmy Carter is is not humble. He is modest, and he's decent, and he's honest, and he doesn't lie. And those things are, you know, I think pretty relevant uh, when we're looking at these politicians. When he was a boy, his ambition was to be a naval officer, to go to the Naval Academy, which he did. And as a young man uh, working for Admiral Rickover on the most exciting technology project in the middle part of the 20th century, which was nuclear-powered submarines, uh, they put a nuclear power plant on the back of a submarine before they had one on land. That was how cutting-edge it was. So at that point, his ambition was to be chief of naval operations. And it was a burning ambition. Um, But when his father died in 1953, he went back to Georgia to assume his father's responsibilities in business and and, uh, civically. And um, first he was ambitious and quite successful in business. And then he caught the political bug and was very ambitious politically to the point where he ducked the civil rights movement. And, you know, I was pressing him. I interviewed him a number of times as well as more than 250 other people for, for his very best. And, and um, you know, he said to me, look, I could have either been in the civil rights movement or been in politics, and I chose to be in politics. So he, he, um, he ducked the movement and, you know, was a centrist, uh, never a racist, but... Um, um, very much a moderate, which I think is a surprise to people now because they they think of him as a flaming liberal. Right, but, sure. um, you know, he was not. And in fact, Ted Kennedy challenged him from the left for the 1980 Democratic nomination. Uh, and Carter was quite conservative on, on certain issues, particularly fiscal issues. Uh, and, and an unpredictable mix of liberal and conservative but his positions hold up really well over time that's one of the things that you know that i found whether you look at um the uh, things like you know airline and trucking deregulation trucking deregulation you know gave us 
UPS, you know, uh, airline deregulation gave us FedEx, you know, I mean, just and plus being able to go out and visit your your grandmother for, you know, less than an arm and a leg in in the 70s, it cost, you know, it was the average cost in in today's dollars of flying from New York to California was about $1,300. Like you can get a much better fare than that nowadays, right? And that's because of airline deregulation. There were literally dozens of bills like that, that, you know, liberals didn't necessarily like because they, they were looking for an ambitious kind of great society continuation. And Carter wasn't into that. Mm. He, he was um, building bipartisan coalitions on a lot of different uh, issues. He sometimes got along better with Republicans like Howard Baker than he did with Democrats. He could be prickly and, and sometimes difficult in 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 person, which um, you know didn't always help his congressional relations. Um, but when you look at the scoreboard at the end of the game, which is what a historian needs to do, you you just saw a lot of points on the board. You know, as a journalist. Um, I look at presidents in large part by how popular they are. How are they doing? Do the voters like them? But historians, and on that score, Carter didn't measure up very well. Mm. Historians look at look at it differently. They, they look at how did this president change the country long term? And what was really interesting is, you know, there were a number of Republicans I, I interviewed who said, you know, I, you know, I was one of those people always dumping on Jimmy Carter, but, you know, it, it turns out there were, there were things he got done that were really pretty good. Even if you're looking at it from a conservative perspective. Um, so, you know, for instance, human rights, um, it, it, it turned out that, um, Vaskov Havel in, in Czechoslovakia and, and a lot of dissidents in the Soviet Union, they, they said Carter's human rights policy helped hollow out the Soviet Union and and was you know extremely important in in ending communism. He didn't do it himself. You know, Reagan obviously made a contribution, but Reagan didn't do it himself either, you know? And these these the, the end of communism was the product of several post-war American presidents, each making a, a different contribution. So I think the important thing in assessing him and, and his, you know, his life partner, Rosalind, is to kind of strip off the, the blinders that I think people on the left and the right have and just try to, look anew at at some of these issues in in the in the long view of of history and um you know so uh, something like i i often come back to um to china um and you know whatever our problems are now with china and they're significant um normalization of relations became the foundation of the global economy mm. And, and um, you know, this bilateral relationship. So Deng Xiaoping comes and, to Washington and he does this deal with Carter. You know, Nixon opened the door, Carter walked through. And, and Republicans, because they were 
concerned about the right wing would never have normalized. So he does this, and Nixon and Kissinger are strongly backing him, but a lot of other more conservative Republicans are opposed. And Deng Xiaoping returns to China, and first thing he does is he legalizes private property. This is a country that was like a <laughs> sub-Saharan African country in terms of its GDP. And then it goes on, you know, the, the greatest growth in, in human history of an economy. And and it not only p- pulled hundreds of millions of Chinese out of poverty and gave them a better life, but it did a lot for Americans who could do, you know, sell into the Chinese market or buy from the Chinese and then finish the products, you know, all kinds of relationships that we still had. Why did Biden just meet with Xi Jinping? You know, why did um, Trump, even as he had, you know, his issues with China, why did he talk um, so much about the relationship? Because our economy does depend on, on there being that strong relationship and all of that economic relationship. And all of that started under Jimmy Carter. You know, I'd love to have you back for a full hour, um, almost out of time, though. But I have to ask you about this. I don't want the uh, our discussion to end without me asking you about his relationship with uh, President Ford. Uh, that 1976 campaign was uh, pretty bitter, very heavily yeah. contested. It was it ended up being one of the closest presidential campaigns in history up until that time, uh, actually still to this day. And yet the two of them as ex-presidents not only seemed to work together, but it seemed they developed a genuine fondness for one another. Is that true? Did they actually become friends, or was this a friendship for the cameras? And if it was genuine, how did these two bitter rivals become friends? Well, it's it's a great question. Um, So what happened is uh, when he was sworn in on January 20th, 1977, Carter said, I want to thank Gerald Ford for all he did to heal our land. Um, You know, and he supported the pardon and he was grateful to Ford for his contributions. And Ford was touched by that. And that began what was a genuine friendship. I mean, they weren't, you know, BFF, but they, they had a really good relationship and they, much better than Carter's relationship with Clinton, which mm. was really fraught. And they, Carter and Clinton had a lot of uh, bad feeling, bad blood between them, which I, I chronicle in my book. Um, and finally, the, the Clintons went to their 75th wedding anniversary a couple of summers ago and sort of buried the hatchet. But it was a it was a very difficult relationship. He had a little bit of a difficult relationship with Obama. Uh, he had first a very good relationship and then a, uh, a problematic one with George H.W. Bush, which I interviewed former President Bush about not long before he died. Um, but the one with Ford was the, the the best one that he had. And they each promised one another that uh, whichever one didn't die first would deliver the eulogy at uh, – the other's funeral. And indeed, when President Ford died, uh, Jimmy Carter delivered the eulogy um, and, um, you know, fulfilling that promise they had 
had made to each other. And it's a reminder that there was a time when we didn't have this insult culture in our politics. Mm. And there was some basic respect and that, yes, you, you, you took shots during campaigns, but there were boundaries that you respected and 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 you you understood the contributions of uh, people, even if they were from a different party, and you you tried to look in a more sophisticated way um, at at uh, various contributions. So, like um, in the case of George H. W. Bush, Carter um, talked Daniel when he was a former president, talked Daniel Ortega out of into leaving uh, power after he lost an election, which no communist had ever done before. It's unprecedented. And and George H.W. Bush was tremendously grateful to Carter for this. But then later, Carter acts like a freelance secretary of state, and he's, <laughs> he's lobbying other heads of state, you know, to... Um, in Security Council to be against Bush's Gulf War, right? Which infuriated Bush. And Bush admitted to me that he was really angry at Carter for this. But then when he took a step back, he said, you know, at the end of the day, he was a decent man and and who did his best and sincerely wanted what was best for this this country. And, and you know, so I I ended up, I have to tell you, you know, I know that Many of your your listeners, uh, some of them anyway, are, are are Donald Trump supporters. So you know, I say this with a, that understanding. But you know, researching Jimmy Carter's life for all of his mistakes, all the things he did wrong, it was it was for me a a, a relief from the Trump presidency because of the. Carter was in so many ways the un-Trump. He's just a, a decent person who did not lie, you know. And when he said, "I'm not going to lie to you," he exaggerated, you know. He was a politician, but he just didn't tell these hundreds or thousands of of lies. He took it seriously that you you don't do that when you're president. You don't take these shots at other people, even though Carter could take some shots. But there was a there was a, a guardrail on on what you did, and that he and Gerald Ford and George H. W. Bush, George W. Bush, Clinton, Obama, all the rest of them respected uh, until until recently. Oh, uh, we're going to have to end it there. I would love to have you back. Uh, there's uh, a lot of other a lot of other stuff I'd like to ask you about the Carter presidency and what's happening in the world uh, these days. One of the things that I've noticed, though, uh, is that while they may have different views and different styles, one similarity between Carter and Trump, if there is one, is that there's a feeling among working class voters who feel that Washington doesn't speak for them uh, that uh, Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump, even though they have very different ways of uh, approaching uh, both politics and policy, that they do kind of stick up for the working class guy that's forgotten by Washington. Would you agree that that was a a commonality in their appeal? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. They were both outsider candidates. And outsider candidates have a lot of appeal 
uh, to many American voters. And and um, it both seemed like a breath of fresh air to their supporters. But I do think it's a, a better uh, comparison between Carter and, and Biden in 2020. You know, Carter became president after Watergate, after there was this you know, this this feeling um, that the uh, the White House had been sort of soiled, you know, and and Carter ran as a healer. And Joe Biden, who was the first uh, senator to endorse Jimmy Carter in 1976, um, he also ran as a healer in in 2020. Like, let's mm-hmm. let's just try to get a sense of decency back. And Carter ran as, you know, I want a government as good as its people. And, and Biden was kind of saying the same thing, like, we can do better than this. Mr. Alter, I have to end it there. I hope we can continue this conversation again. I appreciate you being yeah. so generous with your time, especially this late at night. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. If you want to uh, check out uh, the book, it's called His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. There's also an interesting story about in the book about how that title came to be. Its author is Jonathan Alter. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Jonathan Alter, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. There's something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Another terrific birthday bumper music selection by Larry Maglio, who was celebrating his birthday today. I want to remind you, uh, please like or follow my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Fan. Just click the follow button or like button, whatever they call it now. And if you do that, you'll automatically receive an invitation to uh, join our Facebook group, which is an opportunity to connect with other listeners uh, on my main Facebook page. Even though I, I do use it primarily for show-related stuff, I have taken to sharing more and more Carmine photos on there. Uh, but uh, if you're into the Carmine photos, then follow that page. We went to this Christmas tree lighting in our neighborhood last night. It was postponed from the day before because of weather. And it was fun. It was a little too cold for us, though. And uh, the one thing that Carmine seemed interested in 
is they have this small little Ferris wheel, like a kid's Ferris wheel, and no adults are able to go on it, just for kids. And I told them that. I said, you're going to have to go by, on by yourself, bud, you know, not not with daddy. And he said, self, self, self. So he acted like he was going to go on. And then I see he doesn't meet the height requirement. The height requirement was 42 inches. I think he's 30, 35, 30, 35, 36 inches or something. And then he was upset. And then I took him over to the bouncy castle or the bouncy house because we got one of those for his birthday, which he liked. I put him in the bouncy house and he got upset. He didn't want to be in there by himself. So I don't I don't think if he did end up going on that Ferris wheel, he would have liked it. But um, whatever it was. I'm glad we were there. It's a fun event for the community. A lot of people from the neighborhood there. Um, Minority leader Joe Borelli does a great job with that every year. And uh, but it was just way too cold for, for me, let alone for him. All right, 800-848-9222. Andy is in Rockland. Hi, Andy. Hey, Frank. How are you? I uh, I am doing just peachy. Thank you. That was a great interview. I am a, I'm a big-time presidential uh, reader, and I was listening to that. I, I was hoping that you would ask him to clarify stuff. stuff. Uh, number one is Jimmy Carter was 100 percent responsible for the release of the hostages and i'm a big reagan i love ronald reagan but uh it drives me crazy when reagan people say that you know the ayatollah let let those hostages out because reagan was coming into office and it was really jimmy carter that had everything to do with the release of hostages having to to release money yeah, obviously, you know, there's a lot more we could have gone into with that, uh, with the uh, Camp David Accords, with the Panama situation. You know, you try and uh, squeeze in as much ground as you can in a limited amount of time. But uh, like I said, I, I'd like to have him back and, um, you know, we'll hopefully get into that a little bit more because that's something that's come into the news a bit more recently these days. But I appreciate your uh, feedback, Andy. There was one thing I... I would push back on the one thing he said that that Carter had nothing to do with the hostages, and and I don't think many people know is that the, the embassy was attacked before the November mm-hmm. hostage situation, and and his first instinct Carter was that if he let the Shah back in, that what would happen is exactly what happened that they would take the hostages and not release them. So his instincts were good. Kissinger and Rockefeller. Talk them into Andy, letting the show into the country. Andy, I have to leave it there. I appreciate the feedback. Uh, thank you very much. Until next hour, keep asking questions.